0: Hello, <laughs> how you guys doing? <laughs> Thank you, worship team. That was really great. Nothing like a banger of a worship set for just start off the new year. You know, it's nice. It's nice. Um, if we haven't met yet, I think I've met everybody in this room. But if not, my name is Nick, and uh, just really excited to be here with you guys. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to pray because I already feel like. I just need that. So I'm going to be selfish and pray for myself. So Lord, help me. <laughs> um, help me to just have a clear mind and uh, to just be in tune with your spirit. Help me to um, just do justice with your word. Um, I don't want to be misunderstood or, or misread. I want your word to just be crystal clear tonight in such a way that penetrates our hearts, in such a way that gives us a clear Image of who you are, Jesus. We believe that your Holy Spirit is in this room, and uh, God between it. Every face that's that's out out here in um, sitting down today, st- students and leaders have a story, and uh, we believe that you want to interact with that story and encounter that story. So whether. Whether this break that we just went through was really difficult or really fun or a mixture of everything, I just pray that you would meet us in this place and that you would mold us and shape us to be more like your son, Jesus. It's in your heavenly name that we pray, amen. Awesome. Um, A New Testament theology professor named uh, Scott McKnight, he does two surveys with every single class that he does. And what he does is he gives his class one survey and says, hey, I want you to fill this out. And the questions are all about what your likes and dislikes are. And then what he does, you turn that in, and then he gives you a similar survey. But instead of finding out what your likes and dislikes are, they they ask the students to, or he asks the students to fill it out. And it has to do with what God's likes and dislikes are, what you think God likes and dislikes. And um, what he discovered was that about 90% of the answers are the exact same between the two for each person. Which, which means, like, in other words, we are quick to believe that God is about 90% like us. <laughs> the same likes, the same dislikes, at least 90% on average. Like he is inter- like God is interested in the things that I'm interested in. He loves the, the topics of justice that I like to fight against, just like I do, but the things that I don't really bother or just dis- the things I dislike. He also dislikes those things. Um, and today, We're starting a a new series in tandem with Sunday. So Sundays, we're going to be walking through um, a bunch of conversations that Jesus has with people through the book of John. Um, And we're doing that all the way up until Easter, spending a lot of time in the book of John. But here at youth, there are seven times when Jesus says, I am blank. He he defines who he is. He says, he literally flat out tells us exactly who he is, what kind of person he is. And if Scott McKnight is right about this whole thing, then we need to be people who fight for an accurate understanding and experience of who Jesus is. Would you agree with that? Like if we are really quick to be like, God is probably interested in what I am and not interested in the things that I'm not interested in, what, what is Jesus really interested in? What, what kind of person is he really? What is it really like to have a relationship, not to just know facts about him, but to truly know him? Who is Jesus to you? Literally, I, I, we're going to be contemplating that. Like, who is he? And, and not just like, how am I going to define Jesus, but who is he based on the life that I'm living like, is it really affecting my life? Who is Jesus, the man? This is crazy. He is the man who never wrote a book, but there is more books written about him in all of history. He, he's the man who is the furthest thing from royalty, yet more knees have bowed to him than anybody else. He's the man who got no degree, but whose teachings have been the subject of more study and introspection in all of history. He's the man who never had a photograph taken of him, yet, yet he is the subject of more art than any other figure in all of the world. Isn't that crazy? The man whose life was cut short, yet people who live years and years spend all their years dedicating their lives to him. Like who is Jesus? Is he just a good guy? Is, as some say, is he a prophet? As some say, is he a nobody? It's a figment of somebody's imagination. As some say, is he a teacher? Is he, is he a fictional character or is he the son of God? Well, you get to decide. And that's what this is about. In, in the book of John, there there's these seven I am statements. And this gives us the perspective of the heart and the character of who Jesus is. And, and I, would like, I would venture to say, what we believe about Jesus directs, directly affects how we interact with him. Does that make sense? What we believe about Jesus directly affects how we interact with him. So, cause if we think that God, or if we think that Jesus is like this angry tyrant how are we gonna approach him? How are we gonna interact with him? Like timidly, right? We're like, oh, I don't wanna disappoint him, right? If we think God is like tolerant and he's like a hippie Jesus and he's like permissive and it's like, just do you, like you're gonna have very little respect for him. You're gonna like love him. And it's like, dude, he's cool. Like Jesus is my homeboy, but that's about all the extent of it, right? If you think that Jesus is like this distant inaccessible person, being, like you won't waste your time drawing near to him because you don't think that you can reach him. Does that make sense? Like what you think about Jesus directly affects how you interact with him. But I would say the clearest description that we have of God is the God-man, Jesus. Like when, when God puts on flesh in the person of Jesus and lives a perfect sinless life, we're, we're gonna zoom in on these statements of Jesus and allow him to define himself for us. Like Jesus is a human representation of what God is like. I've heard it said, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus. He only, as the scriptures say in John 5, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He only does what he sees modeled by the Father. So we're going to look at Jesus and some of his um, major identifiers Um. I love this quote from Voltaire. He says, he says this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Isn't that kind of, kind of? it's kind of like cheeky and fun, but it's like, isn't that so true? We try to, to make God into our own image instead of making Jesus into um like instead of us being molded into being more like Jesus we're like no i think Jesus should be more like me um but there there's this caveat with this whole teaching series that i want to make pretty clear is we we don't want to just spend these weeks doing a crash course on fun facts about who Jesus says he is that's not what this is it's it's not like like if all you can do is walk away from this and go to a trivia night that's like what did Jesus say about himself and you can crush it like that's a huge flop what we really want you to experience is to like be able to see Jesus face to face and actually relate to him like an actual friend, like somebody that you have a personal relationship with, somebody that, as the scriptures say, that we behold his glory, that we just stare at Jesus, that we really get a glimpse and a taste of who he is. Um, Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I hope that this series shapes who we think God is. I hope we, 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 we have this development of just reverence for who Jesus is. And we just look upon him with awe and wonder, um, I don't know about you, but I don't want to just know about Jesus. I want to truly know him. And I'm on a journey of doing that. Like I want to know who he is. Like, like before like I just know Allison, right? Before I knew facts about her, but it's being in relationship that I'm like, I, I think I know her after a few years of being married and whatnot. Well, I'm still getting to know her, but, um, but here, here's what the next few weeks are gonna look like. I wanna lay this out for you. Jesus, these are the claims that he makes. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life and the true vine. And Rebe- Rebecca McLaughlin famously puts it like this, if Jesus is the bread of life, loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, loss of Jesus means wandering alone and lost. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. And if Jesus is the lamb of God sacrificed for our sins, loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. Today, we're talking about Jesus being the bread of life. Everybody say bread. If any of you were at summer camp, some of you are going to be like, I think I remember you talking about this before, because we talked about bread a lot, bread. So um, in John 6, we read one of Jesus's most famous teachings, and it's actually his largest miracle that he performs. Um, There's this massive crowd following Jesus, and they follow him for so long into the middle of nowhere that they realize um, that that they are really, really hungry and there's not uh, a restaurant anywhere nearby, right? Nobody's gonna be cooking them up some grub. So they all start getting hungry and this was about to be a huge problem. Everybody was hangry. So one of the disciples finds a kid that's wandering along and he's carrying a couple fish sticks and like a bread stick or two. And this is crazy. Jesus expands it to feed... All 5,000 men, it says 5,000 men, which is actually like 15,000 to 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. Like just to feed you guys in this room here would be a lot. And we're going to see that at winter camp. But imagine 15 to 20,000 people with the number three off the Long John Silver's menu. That's crazy, right? It's just outrageous. Um, one scholar notes that this was likely the first time that most of these people had ever went to bed with a full stomach, in that time, it was, it was pretty likely that you would just eat enough to get by. You wouldn't eat your fill. And these people went to bed, not only in the middle of nowhere where there is no food, but with food, full stomachs at the hand of Jesus. What a miraculous miracle. They ate their fill. They went to bed full. Um, and as you can imagine, this miracle piqued the interest of the people. They're like, dang, if this is what Jesus is all about, We don't want him to just follow us around. We want this guy to be crowned king. Like if he can do that with fish and bread, imagine what he could do with other things. Like there's some other miracles. Like I wonder what he could do with wine, you know? No, that was a different story and actually before this. uh, Anyways, he has the ability to sustain our daily food needs. That is crazy. Um, But here's a question that I want to challenge you to ask yourself, have you ever befriended someone just because they had something cool? Think about it for a second. Have you ever like drawn close to somebody because you're like, ooh, they have that one thing or like maybe because they are popular or maybe because they had that game system that you really wanted to hit up or something like that. This was kind of the situation. They wanted in on the stuff that Jesus could give them. So, so the crowd keeps following him and they realize um, they've lost him. All of a sudden, Jesus disappears. And and what happens is Jesus actually sneaks away. He wants to get, get out of the the crowd. So, so all of a sudden they travel across the sea and they find Jesus. And here's what it says in, in John six, uh, 25 through 27. Here we go. When they, that's the crowds, the crowd of people that, that Jesus fed the day before when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, rabbi, when did you come here? How in the world did you get here? Um, they never saw him leave on a boat. They're really confused. Like we would have spotted you and tracked you down. We know he didn't leave on a boat because just before just before this, it was the scene where Jesus walks on water. So he literally left by just like walking on water. And I love how Jesus doesn't answer his question. They're like, how did you get here? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So these people are tracking down Jesus, and and they got one thing right. And the thing they got right is that they should be pursuing Jesus, Right? He's the man to follow, he's the rabbi, he's the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, but he calls their bluff. And here's what I mean. They were fixated on the product of the miracle, not the person of the miracle. Right? They didn't want Santa, they just wanted the presents. You know what I'm, nah, I'm saying? I was stupid, but it's just, tis the season, right? But they, get this, maybe you, you remember this part from camp. They were more interested in the presence of Jesus than they were the presence of Jesus. Does that make sense? They were more interested in what they could get from Jesus than actually being in relationship with Jesus. They didn't actually want to be near the miracle worker. They just wanted to get in on the magic, right? They missed the point. And to be honest, we're so quick to miss the point as well. At least I'm the first to admit. Sometimes I get it wrong. Um, It's easy to seek Jesus for our purposes and our agenda instead of seeking him for him. Like, I just want to be near him. You don't have to give me anything. I just want to be in your presence. I love the faith um, that Jesus is inviting them into. Um, and let's keep reading in John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And this is a hilarious question right here. Like, I don't know how Jesus didn't say, are you stinking kidding me right now? I just fed 20,000 people. What kind of sign are you looking for? But he's a lot more gracious than I. Um, and he said this, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Oh, wait, they keep 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 getting, uh, keep chatting with him. It says, our father ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So this is a moment in the, in the Old Testament when God's people were fed daily. It had come fallen out of the sky, fresh bread, you know, like olive garden breadsticks, fallen down, and they're basically saying, listen, Moses hooked, us, hooked our ancestors up with food. Like, you only did this for one day. And then this is how Jesus responds. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, You got the story wrong. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven, right? It was God's doing. And then he says this, "'For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven "'and gives life to the world.' "'They said to him, "'Sir, give us this bread always.' "'Jesus said to them, "'Okay, I'll give you this bread. "'It's me.'" I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus didn't come to give bread. He came to be bread. Does that make sense? You're like, not quite yet. Well, we'll go further. He didn't come to fulfill us for a moment, but to fulfill us for eternity. He's saying, I am the food source. And if you take me into your life, I will nourish you and I will sustain you. I will be your life force or life force and source, I guess. But this metaphor is so simple, but it's so profound when you think about it. You're like, if he truly does cause my life to flourish and causes me to grow and to be nourished, like I want to have that daily nourishment, right? I want... Actually, how many, like we have three meals a day most likely. Dude, oftentimes we have like one dose of church a week. You know what I'm saying? It's like we need multiple meals of this nourishment every single day. He is bread that doesn't just keep you alive, but it he gives you true life. That's the point here. So the, the Greeks have two ways of thinking about this. The first is bios, which is your physical life. And the second is zoe. And zoe refers not to your physical life, but, but your quality of life. And, and Zoe is this abundant life. Zoe is, is it, Jesus has come to give people not just breath in their lungs, but to give them this abundance that they live into and fl- the flourishing life that starts now and lasts for eternity. That's what it's all about. Jesus is to the soul what bread is to the body. Jesus is to the soul what bread is to the body. And what that is, is sustenance. To live a flourishing life you need Jesus. Would you agree with that? I know some of you would. And if I could challenge you, if, you don't, if you're not there yet, if you're like, I don't know if I believe that, I just wanna challenge you to try it. Feast on him, like sit in his presence and, and feast on what he offers you. And I dare you to try it. I, I truly believe that, that he will come through. He does this stuff. Um, and I don't mean flourish in the sense that like life isn't gonna be hard. Because how many of you know man, I follow Jesus and life is really stinking hard. It flourishes for sure, but it doesn't mean that all the bad stuff just goes away and we're all hunky-dory and just sit around and tell Bible verses to each other, right? Like I'm talking about a life that is so stable and so secure that all hell can break loose in your family. All your friends can leave you. you could, everything could fall apart and you can remain stable and secure because your life is anchored to the true source of life. Isn't that so good? I loved that second song that they were singing. You guys catch the lyrics there? I' Trying to recall, they were talking about like, man, I'm so grateful that I built my life on Jesus because everything came, like the waves came, the wind blew, but my life was built on you. You know, no, I'm just kidding. No, keep going, yeah. And the question this causes me to ponder and causes us to ponder is this, what meal have I been feasting on? What meal have you been feasting on? Like metaphorically speaking, what have I been after? Where have I been trying to find life and fulfillment and satisfaction and sustenance? Like, and what, like, is it working or is it just getting me by? Am I just limping through life because it kind of works and it's kind of getting me through? Like really at the end of the day, if I'm being honest, what have I been eating at the table of? been eating at the table of blank, fill in the blank. What have I been striving after? I don't know what it is for you. Maybe popularity or success, or maybe you're like, dude, honestly, I'm just really lazy right now. To be honest, I fall into the apathy category if I'm not careful or self-fulfillment. And um, if you're having a hard time figuring out what it is for you, I have a couple of ways you can figure this out. Is you look at your calendar and you um, maybe some of you have bank statements. I'm not sure. Um, and then it basically comes down to this, where you spend your downtime and where you invest your life, your money, or whatever it is, your, your time and your money, those places often show us what we value most. That's a good, good litmus test, a good way to find that out. It's, it's, it's hard to crave the Lord when we've been feasting on lesser things. That's that's something I've come to find. Like when I'm just indulging, we talked about this at, at summer camp, remember like the um, chips and salsa, you know what I'm saying? Does that ring a bell for anybody? The chips and salsa before the Mexican food comes out, it's like I have drank like 30 cups of water, and so many chips. And then all of a sudden those enchiladas come out and you're like, I am so full that that does not look appealing. I should have paced myself. You know what I'm saying? And I think we do that in this world. Like John Piper communicates it like this. Like if you don't feel strong desires for the glory of God, it's not because you've eaten your fill and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. I read an article a while back about the most dangerous things or the biggest threat to your faith are things that almost work. Things that almost work. They're the most dangerous things to your faith. So, so like think of this physical bread, food in general, it almost works to fulfill your life. Like it can keep you alive for a bit. It can give you joy and comfort and security, but the food goes bad at some point and you get hungry again and you need more. And Ultimately, it cannot save you. It cannot give you salvation. It almost works. Consumerism almost works, right? You have all the newest and the best things and you like are convincing yourself that you're like, okay, because you've got this stuff. And then those things break and those things disappear and those things aren't eternal. They, and I've heard it said like this, there is no hitch on a hearse. There's no trailer hitch on a hearse. It doesn't matter what kind of things you consume. You can't take those things with you into eternity. Dedicate your life to things that will last for eternity is the the point there. Drug use literally almost works. Like it it numbs both physical and mental pain. It alters your mind, but that stuff wears off and you need more and that's where addiction happens. Vacation experiences almost work. You get a taste of heaven, you know, you go somewhere and you're like, oh, like, that's so good. But guess what? You have to go back home and school is there and work is there and it cannot fulfill you. The Christian life is about refusing to build our lives on things that almost work and clinging to the bread that will last now forever. That's what it's about. What things have you been pursuing that almost works? I want you to really think about that, and I want you to like, be creative and, and, and thoughtful about your response in small groups tonight. Like, What is it that like, almost works? Like, I almost actually believe that it's sustaining my life, but it really isn't. My invitation is Jesus' invitation, work for food that never spoils and water that never runs dry. Invest your life into that. Like in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read an amazing line that goes like this, he has also set eternity into the human heart. He has set eternity in, like that's what we were made for is eternity. And it's no wonder why we're often discontented and constantly wanting more. Um, it's no wonder that like addiction runs rampant. It's in our world is because you can sp- or like spend hours and hours and hours on a screen is because your soul wants eternity and then your body goes okay. Then I'm going to spend eternity on this. No, 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 no. Spend like you were We're born for another world. We have eternity in our hearts. Only eternal things will satisfy your eternal soul. That's it. C.S. Lewis says, "If I find in myself desires." which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We're made for eternity and this world is not eternal. If we truly were made for another world, how do we remain faithful in this one? How do we remain faithful in this one? I want to just be wildly practical tonight. Um, If we are going to truly feast on the things of God, we need to be people who guard our appetite. Guard your appetite. What are you doing to guard your appetite for the things of God? Um, if you go back to the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3, it was the first sin to ever be committed. It had to do with food, with appetite. It had, uh, it had to do with fulfilling a want or desire that was against God's best for Adam and Eve. They neglected to guard their appetite. Now, I want you to see this in Genesis yeah, 3, 6, and it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That was very kind of her and just generous for her to share. Um, they liked what they saw and they developed an appetite for that which was destructive to their lives. Do you see the, the progression there? Like, I wonder what kind of things we've been engaging in that robs your appetite for the Lord? And I ask you that, ask you myself that. I'm like, I wonder what kind of things that I do that like robs me from wanting the things of God. Because it's so easy to like veg out on Netflix and I'm like, dang, I really don't have a desire for this because I just like watched the craziest movie scene and this is kind of boring. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, what if I just didn't do that and I feasted on this, gave him my first fruits, right? If Adam and Eve would have just stayed away from the stinking tree their desires and their appetite for the tree would not have kept growing. And I wonder how often we do that. You know, We have access to so many of these different distractions. Um, curiosity grew and appetite within them grew that destroyed their relationship with God. We can see all throughout scripture from the beginning to the end, examples of this truth right here, that appetite determines the direction of our lives. What? And, and that's true for us, man. Like, if you're hungry for something, your appetite's gonna lead you right to that thing, right? Any, any holiday food fans, you know? All those Christmas cookies or... I mean, all the, all the good food, you know? Allison's been making these great cookies lately. And my... I go... That directs, the, uh, directs my life, okay? Right towards the bowl, cookie bowl, cookie jar. I don't know what I'm saying. If this is true... If this is true right here, we need to be disciplined in how we guard our appetite, right? Like what appetites we have grow based on how often we feed them. So th- there's this um, word that we find in scripture that, that kind of captures how we do this. It's Leviticus 1144. This is God. He says, I am the Lord, your God. And this is the invitation. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Consecrate yourself because I... Be holy because I am holy. So this word holy, what does it mean? Set apart, it means set apart. For those of you who don't know, it means to be set apart for a specific purpose. God is holy, he is other than. He's other than, but we are also called to be holy or set apart or other than. Other than what? What are we called to be other than? Anybody have an idea? The world. We're called to be other than the world right there is nothing compelling about a life that claims Jesus as lord and looks no different from the world right that's what we called that's what we call hypocrisy there's nothing compelling for somebody to stand up here and say Jesus is the lord of my life and then goes and lives like the rest of the world right it, at the end of the day isn't that why people have such a hard time with christians is cuz they say dude It's just filled with hypocrites. No, we're actually filled with, we're just a bunch of sinners who need Jesus, right? But also how compelling is it when we stand up here and we say, Jesus is the Lord of my life and then we go and live like he truly is, right? That is what he's inviting into. There's two kingdoms at war, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. It's a battle between worldliness and godliness. And I've heard it said like this, worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange, The world will make sin look normal. Like everybody's doing this. This is just what you do. If you're in this world, this is what you do. Or or it makes you feel like this. I would be weird if I didn't do what everybody else is doing. Like I would be standing out. And worldliness makes a righteous and God-honoring person look really weird. When you say Jesus is the Lord of my life and you start making decisions that make him the Lord of your life, you are going to look weird to this world. Don't be surprised. And in this world, you're gonna have trouble, but have no fear like Jesus has overcome the world. David Foster Wallace has this uh, funny way of explaining the culture that we live in. He tells us this story. Two younger fish are asked by um, an older fish. Can you picture this? How's the water today? And, And the younger fish says to the other fish and says, what the heck is water? Isn't that funny? No one? Okay. So why, why would I even say, well, Wallace uses this story to point this out that oftentimes like fish in water, we're not always aware of what surrounds us. So I think even as I'm telling you this, like, dude, we live in the world and it's very diff- different from a godly life. A lot of you might be like, I don't really know what you're talking about. Maybe because you haven't woken up to the reality that there is this war going on, that there is this stream that we kind of swim in without even realizing it. And, and that. And that, that's why we have this group because I say not us, not for us. I don't want that to be true for, for Cedar Mill youth. Can I just say in faith that we aren't like everyone else and we're gonna take a stand that is going to be different from other people because we are holy, we are consecrated, we've been set apart for a holy purpose. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks to the Philippian church about this concept and he says this, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears. So he, there, there's this sadness that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. We'll talk about that in a sec. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's the culture and the air that we breathe. But our citizenship, this is what, this is what he's trying to get our, our minds to shift to think like. Our citizenship is somewhere else. It's in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Man, I'm looking forward to that transformation. But the word stomach here, um, it does not mean that they were obsessed with their bellies. It was a way of saying that they acted on any and every bodily urge that they had. And that's kind of our cultural temperature. Like, isn't Ariana Grande, right? I like it, I want, or something like that. I like it, I want it. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. Something like that, right? They they lived by impulse, right? They saw it and they just took it for themselves. But Paul contrasts that to the Christian life. Like our citizenship, our governing authority isn't our belly. It isn't, I like that, I want it, I'm gonna take it for myself. It's not impulse. We don't do what we want when we want. We strive to do what God has called us to. He has unhindered sway over our lives. Like our ultimate authority is King Jesus who gives us living bread. It sustains our lives. And when he says, go left, we go left. When he says, this life is best for you, we go, I wouldn't do it that way, God, but you're the, you're the leader and the authority in my life. Our daily, like your identity, when Jesus says, this is who you are, you go, I don't like how you've defined me. I wanna go this way with my identity. Okay, Jesus, you are the ruler of my life. I'm gonna listen to what you say about who I am. And we live into that. I'm believing tonight that there's gonna be kind of a shift of citizenship for some of us. Maybe in this new year, you just take on a full new identity. And that is that you are a citizen of heaven and you're gonna live as Jesus is, is the absolute ruler and supremely like authoritative over your life. Like you used to be mastered by the world, but you're gonna be mastered by Jesus in 2024. Does anybody want that? Maybe you're maybe some of you are in here and you're like, bro, honestly, I've been doing that for years and it's the best thing ever. Maybe some of you are like, I've been doing that for a couple months and it's really stinking hard. And I want to just say, keep going, keep pressing in. I don't want to go with the flow. Man, I've been feeling that pressure lately, just like friend to friend here. Like I've been feeling the pressure to just kind of go with the flow and just kind of go through my day, just like people normally go through their day. But man, I, I, I don't want to just exist in the water of this culture. I, I hope you feel that discontent too, where you want to be set apart and consecrated and different. I want to come to the table of God's love, like starving for him, right? I want to keep feeding this appetite where I'm just like, I just can't wait to get into this more. I can't wait to get into this room so that I can worship. I can't wait to get around people who, who are like-minded that can sharpen me and I can encourage them. Um. I'm going to make this point very quick cuz this was this was also a camp you may have re- remembered this one. I love this phrase right here. A closed mouth don't get fed. A closed mouth don't get fed. I keep seeing Shaylin look at her notes from summer camp and be like <laughs> and I'm like she's fu- she's note takers what are they? That's what's up. But also a closed mouth don't get fed, which means which means this. I I, I would say we have more access to um, things like scripture, things like Bible studies, Lectio 365, YouVersion Bible app, healthy churches in the area, mentors, small groups, man, there, there's just so much access. And it's really hard to, to look around and say, wow, all this stuff is accessible, but none of those things really matter if you don't receive them, right? Um. Your response though, it might, it might be like, yeah, I I get that. I haven't, my mouth has been closed. I realize that, but I don't really feel like opening my mouth to the things of God. Like it sounds cool. Like I love seeing the influencers online and stuff like that. Like that seems pretty legit to me, but when it comes down to it, actually being in the quiet of my house, reading this thing seems really stinking boring and church is kind of lame. I I want to encourage you with John Maxwell's phrase here. He says it like this. You can act your way into a feeling long before you can feel your way into an action. In other words, if you wait to act until you feel like it, you very well will not move at all. Does that make sense? Like if I only waited to read the scripture when I felt like it, I may never get to that to that point. There are times when I come in for worship for instance, and I don't feel like engaging. I don't feel like raising my hands. I don't feel like really paying attention to the lyrics, but as this, as that worship song says, like, this is how I fight my, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I need to fight a battle here, and I need to redirect my attention and focus on the Lord. Some of the most powerful moments of worship are times when I've come in, and I didn't want to do it at all, and I had really profound encounters with the Lord. I want to encourage you, like, lean into it, and I I almost guarantee you that the, the more consistently you lean into this as you will start feeling something. You will start feeling the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. You might not have a lot of appetite for the things of God, but I would just encourage you like feed the appetite that you do have. You're like, dude, I can't read for an hour. Can you read for five minutes? Probably. I can't, I can't worship. All the songs is just annoying. Oh, you can do one of the songs, you know what I'm saying? Feed the appetite or that, that you do have for the things of God. Um, and this is the final point here. I think there's this um, evangelistic point that has to do with, with Jesus being the bread of life. Um, and it's this, that once, once we've received this bread, we know where the bread is, right? Right? We cannot live a privatized faith when we have a resurrected Christ. So like we don't have this hoarding mindset about the things of God. We have this generosity mindset where we go, dude, I have found access to this bread. I need to start telling everybody about where this is. You know, I'm so grateful that somebody told my dad about Jesus, like where the bread is. (laughs) And then my dad came home and said, hey, Here's the gospel, and he laid it out for me, and now I'm able to say, hey, listen, I have found bread that actually leads to life, and I want to share that with you. Does that make sense? We're just slinging bread. That's like all we do. We're like bakers, okay? Brennan Manning even says, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where where the to get the bread. I don't know what's wrong with his spell. They're like... Dude, and also, it's also Brennan Manning, um, not Brennan Banning. So um, the book that I got that out of was uh, must have had typos or something because I definitely did not make those mistakes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but the, the point here is that, that Jesus didn't just save us from something. He saved us for something. He saved us from sin, right? But he saved us for a purpose, to go out and tell people where the, bread, where the bread really is. You are saved to be somebody filled with the presence of God and bringing heaven to the places that you find yourself, okay? And, and I've said this many times and I'll keep saying this till the day I die, but you might be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. You might be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. So what, what version is that going to be? I don't mean like the message or the NIV. I mean like, is it gonna be a good representation of who Jesus is? Like if someone encounters you, what are they going to encounter? Because I, I, I believe that the, the world needs like full people, people who have been feasting on the bread of life. Because have you ever encountered somebody like that where you're like, I just know that they've been around the Lord. I don't, like in the book of Acts, um, it said like they were uneducated men but but you could tell that they had been with Jesus. Like I want that to be true about Cedar Mill people, you know. It's like, oh, you go to that church? Oh my goodness. I feel like every time I meet somebody from that church, they're just overflowing. Like living water is coming out of them. It's like they're they've been near someone or something, they're just so much different. And you know what we get to say at that point? Dude, it's just Jesus. Like it's nothing I've done. <laughs> like I just draw near to the Lord and that's that's what you're experiencing right now. So, um With that, I'm just gonna go ahead and, I've I've got more stuff, but I think that's a good place to stop. I'm just gonna invite you to stand up with me and we're gonna pray as a family as we jump into small groups. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus. And uh, thank you so much that um, it's recorded exactly who Jesus says that he is. And... uh, God, we all have different preconceived ideas of, of who you are and what you're like, but I just pray that your word would actually reveal to us what you are and, and what you are like and what it's like to commune with you. And God, I pray that, that as we read this, it wouldn't be facts to memorize as much as it is a person to relate with. We want to truly know you. And if you, tr- if you say that you're the bread of life, that you will sustain our lives and that just like food is gonna nourish our bodies, that you are going to nourish us, then then God, we just say, prove it to us. And we say, "We're, we're here hungry and our mouths are open. God, feed us. Help us to be people who are just full of you in such a way that people recognize it. We wanna be near to you. So God, I just pray for the, the small group leaders and for the students that are here that there would just be um, just a really rich time of diving into um, conversation and how this has affected each person in this room. So we love you and we give you this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things, amen.